This is a Federal News Network podcast. Vendors bidding on the $50 billion CIOSP4 government-wide acquisition contract, and there are scores of them, might be feeling a little bit like ping-pong balls. The NIH IT Acquisition and Assessment Center, known as NITAC, reversed course on its requirements for final proposals barely a week after reversing them in the first place. And bids are due in a week. Federal News Network's Jason Miller joins me with the latest amendment number 16 of this highly sought GWAC. Jason, CIOSP4 is seeming to be like the endless summer. Is it ever going to come to an end? The old version, CIOSP3, and we will get CIOSP4. What is the latest changes here? The latest amendment that NIH and NITAC just put out just yesterday, Tom, changes the requirement for bidders to submit their new BAFO or best and final offer in the world of contracting talk through this portal that they had set up through a third party. Tom, we wrote about this last week that the portal just was not working. When I talked to industry sources, they complained bitterly about so many problems with the with the portal itself. They said, listen, it takes too much time. It doesn't remember your data. Saving, you put in some data to save it. It didn't remember that you saved it, so you have to re-put in the data. And what NIH and NITAC did is they heard these complaints and they extended the deadline to February 11th at 5 p.m. They just came out with a new amendment and saying, yes, the deadline is still February 11th at 5 p.m. for best and final offers, but you no longer have to use this Insight portal. And if you've submitted your proposals back in August, your final proposals in August, and you aren't making really any changes, then you don't need to resubmit. Just let us know and, and, and send in or tell us that you've already submitted your, your best and final offer. So, Tom, this is a huge change because so many vendors were redoing their proposals because they got a best and final. And I think this is really frustrating for how much effort they've put into it over the last four or five months. And for NITAC to come out, again, last minute on this is, I think, both frustrating for vendors, but also just it's unfortunately the way this procurement has gone over the last year plus. Yeah, kind of ironic there that the IT front end is non-functional for a major IT services and products contract they're trying to get. But aren't we nearly a year past when the bids were due in the first place? Had everything gone to schedule? Correct. When I first wrote, started writing about this, Tom, I was talking to NITAC. They expected bids to initially be sent in in late April of 2021. Here we are, February of 2022, and they still haven't accepted bids yet. And Tom, that's a major problem for, for, for several reasons. Uh, first of all, the, the big problem is the current CIO SP3 contracts end, their, their, their date to end is May, mid-May 2022. So it's only a few months away. So it's doubtful that they're going to be able to make awards in time before this contract will end. Now, they have not said this yet. We're still waiting to hear if they're going to need to extend CIO SP3. But I think they, were, they had initially put together their their acquisition timeline to deal with all these challenges, but the challenges have been mounting and mounting and mounting. And here we are, February of 2022, and, and bids are just due. Final bids are just due. And I think that's that's the other frustrating point for a lot of vendors. They, they've been working on this now for the better part of two, two and a half years. And as a practical matter, what leeway do vendors on CIO SP3 have to update their product offerings so that it at least feels like CIO SP4? Generally speaking, there's usually a time when the agency says for a GWAC, okay, no more updating the current contract because the new one is, is imminent. In this case, my guess would be, Tom, that the product offerings can continue to be updated because one, NITEC wants to offer the best and most you know relevant technologies. 
at the same time, they realize that awards for CISP4 probably now aren't going to happen. My guess would be the fall, maybe the next winter. Wow. And, of course, we've seen a lot of GWAC troubles from all of the agencies trying to reestablish fresh versions of expiring GWACs. Why has this been so challenging? For NITAC specifically, they faced a host of protests. And, and I think part of the reason for NITAC is twofold. Number one, they're taking two contracts because they had CIOSP3 that was unrestricted or for larger businesses. And then they had CIOSP3 for small businesses. For the CIOSP4, they're combining the two contracts into one, and that's also caused a lot of concern and frustration for agencies. And, you know, at one point, NITEC was expecting something to the effect of a 1,000 bidders uh, to, to submit proposals, and, and that's a lot of, lot of different vendors looking to get in. Second, they've faced a lot of protests because of the approach they're taking of a self-scoring sheet. They also wrote some regulations in, into the contract clauses that people went – that doesn't make sense, like around joint ventures and teaming and how the, those would work. If you had a small business teaming with another small business, they had to do one. They had one approach. If you had a large business teaming with a small business, they had a different approach. And, and, and there was a, something to the effect of almost two dozen bid protests that NYTEC had to deal with. You know, they won all of them, but the last one and this last one that they won around the joint ventures and teaming requirements really is the cause for these latest delays. And in fact, they go into this latest amendment and they say in the amendment, if the changes in sections L521 don't really affect you, don't worry about it. Just submit your self-scoring forms now. So again, there, there a lot of effort that's been ongoing by by vendors. And now NITEC comes out and says, uh, we were just kidding. We don't need you to do that anymore. And I think that's the frustration that we're hearing and, and Tom, the frustration from that from agents from vendors has been going on for the better part of a year. So protests then at the solicitation level hobbled this one. Is that pretty much the case for the other GWACs that have been delayed? What we've seen over the last you know dozen years, twenty years, is everyone wants to get on to these GWACs, and that's why they take longer than expected. Uh, a lot of agencies build in the protest period, knowing that there's a lot of interest. Uh, and, and it's good to see, for instance, Tom, that GSA, as one example for their Astro contract, said we're not going to worry about price, and we're going to let more, we're going to let lots of people on, and we're going to worry about the task order level. That's when price matters, and a lot of times that's that's what gets hung up is is what price you're offering, and that's why these master contract levels kind of have have so much trouble. But what we've started to see is, and, and again, NITAC is taking on a lot of GSA's best practices using the self-scoring sheet. I think that worked out well for Oasis. I think GSA is using it again for, for several other procurements. But what we're starting to see is is delays of a lot of GWACs. We know Polaris from GSA is, is in the works. There's a, a recent item that came out from GSA saying we're going to release the next set of RFPs for these pools, women-owned small businesses, as an example, in the, in the coming weeks. And there's a lot of interest in Polaris for small businesses. We've seen interest in the services multiple word contract that GSA is also working on. And, and in fact, Tom, just recently they put out a statement of work, a draft RFP section C, as they call it, draft statement of work for what this will cover. And this services multiple word contract is another huge one. When you just look at all the different areas, they're going to attract almost every company in the federal market who does services. So I think the bigger these contracts get, the harder they are to award. And I think NITAC, to, to their extent, they tried to do something innovative, but they're realizing just how difficult this is because of how many people are interested. Again, upwards of a thousand bidders they, they could receive in the end. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not... my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffel Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.